Okay. Um, well, I'm going to go with the um, the picture in the, uh, the weekly worker and begin um, with uh, Ukraine. Um, specifically, to begin with, just to comment on the Kirsch uh, Bridge. Um, Ukraine isn't owning up that it did it, um, but it's um, celebrating um, the pictures of uh, this bridge and the explosion on it. My guess, for what it's worth, is Ukraine did it. Uh, this wasn't an accident. Clearly, it wasn't a missile um, coming in um, on this bridge. There's no evidence of that. So one presumes a carefully placed and carefully detonated a bomb uh, by secret um, forces. That's, that's, that's my guess. And uh, I just thought in terms of guessing who did what, just worthwhile flagging an article carried by The Guardian a couple of days ago, reporting an article in the New York Times reporting a US security spokesperson saying that the US investigation of the killing of uh, Daria uh, Dugan, remember Alexander uh, Dugan's um, daughter, who got blown up. And I do, the, the reason I raise this is just to illustrate the sort of disinformation campaign that we're subject to, um, at least in Britain, by the mainstream media. And I'm sure it's true elsewhere uh, that in Britain, when this bomb went off and, and killed this woman, the BBC was from wall to wall um, into speculation about how it was Putin uh, that did it, how this was an inside job, how it was uh, Kremlin uh, forces. And when the uh, Russian authorities released a picture of um, some woman who they claimed was a Ukrainian agent, this was poo-poo. Well, according to at least the New York Times, um, <laughs> it was the Ukrainians what did it. Well, again, I'm sorry, like, uh, you start off, at least in my, my method, you know, by um, going for the probable. And if you discount the probable, then, then it's perfectly legitimate to go uh, towards uh, improbable um, explanations. Uh, it's, it's my approach also on Nord, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream uh, 2, um, according to the BBC. It was the Russians what did it. And I, I just go, well, why on earth would they do that? And if they were going to do that, where's the instant response? So, you know, you, you sabotage your own uh, gas pipeline. And if that's the big idea, OK, then one would expect some instant response, some instant retaliation. Uh, no, my guess for what it's worth. And again, I'm just an armchair Joe here. My guess what it's worth is it was the Americans. Hey, so yeah, when it comes to uh, this bridge um, linking Crimea with the uh, Russian uh, mainland, my guess is that it's um, the Ukrainians uh, that did it. Uh, it wasn't the Russians 
Uh, it could have been the Americans, but my, my guess is that it's the Ukrainians. It, it's possible uh, that as with the Moscova, uh, the United States um, provided technical help, but I, I don't really see any particular compelling reason on this occasion uh, to make that suggestion. As I understand it, with the sinking of the Moskova, uh, there was, uh, I think if I get the make of the plane right, uh, a US Poseidon a patrol aircraft um, in the vicinity, and one presumes that the United States let the Ukrainians, when they were guiding these Neptune missiles, um, gave them access to satellite um, um, information about the exact uh, location of this um, flag carrier uh, of the um, flagship of the um, uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet. Anyway, I don't think that we should view the attack on uh, the Kirsch Bridge as some sort of strategic um, game changer. Uh, that's been the line of uh, the BBC and uh, uh, other news outlets uh, in, in Britain. I don't see that at all. Um, as I understand it, uh, repairs have been done. Uh, traffic is uh, flowing on that bridge. Um, so I don't see this as being some sort of severing um, uh, of communications. And the fact of the matter is that there's now a land bridge, uh, not a, um, you know, um, some construct in uh, uh, steel and concrete. Uh, but of course, Russia controls a whole strip uh, of land. And we're not talking about a strip. We're talking about a big chunk of land. Uh, to the north of um, Crimea. So this isn't Crimea isolated from Russia, uh, cut off in terms of supplies or reinforcements. No, what it is, it, it's a morale uh, blow uh, to Russia. Um, it's very difficult, I admit, uh, to go on anything that we get in terms of the mainstream media but my reading of it is that uh, in Kiev, they celebrated and in Moscow, they mourned and either said that um, this shows you how badly the war is going for us or we ought to uh, take revenge by doing X, Y uh, and Z. And, you know, that's sort of vox pop um, um, interviews, uh, you know, with people on the ground. One can sort of guess uh, what the reaction above is, um, and that 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 guess is, uh, at least by me, uh, splits and divisions, uh, because it's not just a question of uh, a bomb going off on the Kirsch uh, bridge. Uh, what we're dealing with is um, Russia losing ground, both in the south uh, and in the north um, um, east, and. Um, the fact of the matter is that, um, uh, you know, Russian forces are hardly um, conducting themselves um, in the manner I, I think that anyone, uh, you know, would have predicted, i.e. Uh, things have been going very bad uh, for Russia. And I think that's been true since the beginning of the war, you know, the first phase, the thrust to Kiev, which ended in humiliation. It's true 
um, in the south and in the east, Russian forces have made uh, gains. That's what you would have expected. Uh, but since then, uh, those forces have been, how should you put it, um, held uh, to um, a stalemate. And then with this offensive, crucially uh, in the northeast, you know, we've seen uh, Ukrainian uh, advances. And I think that that is to be explained, um, you know, a sort of threefold way I would suggest. And that's, first of all, Russian incompetence, military uh, incompetence uh, above. Secondly, um, supplies of um, up-to-date um, weaponry from the West, uh, particularly from uh, the United States to Ukraine. And thirdly, um, the fact that um, on the Ukrainian side, there's a clear objective um, um, as far as the troops are concerned, and as far as Russian troops are concerned, there's no clear uh, objective. You know, what is the war about from a Russian point of view? Um, is it about securing the Donbass, uh, where you've got, um, you know, a Russian uh, majority? Um, is it about stopping genocide against the Russian uh, population? Remember, the Russian population would be spread not only, you know, in terms of the east and the south, but uh, uh, further in uh, to uh, Kiev itself. Is it about that? Or is it about taking the whole uh, of Ukraine uh, and the idea that Putin put forward at one time uh, that Ukraine isn't a proper nation, that it's always really been part of, uh, of Russia. Uh, and this is about the um, reunification uh, of the Russian uh, people. And one presumes that after uh, little uh, Ukraine has been um, taken, uh, then it's the um, uh, then it's a question of white Russia being incorporated back into uh, some sort of greater Russia. Well, all of that to me is a very confusing uh, narrative. On the other hand, at least as far as Ukrainian Ukrainians are concerned, uh, I, I think the issue is quite straightforward, and that's our country is being invaded. Uh, we're going to drive out the, the invaders. Very clear, very straightforward. And at least my reading of it, uh, for what it's worth, is while you could have, um, you know, painted a picture uh, of uh, Ukrainians fleeing abroad, and I'm talking about men of, um, you know, military age, so what, 18 to 60, that sort of age group, fleeing abroad, um, um, the fact of the matter is we've also had people volunteering um, on the Ukrainian side, um, where at least you know, if, if what I see is to be believed, and if the figures I see are to be believed, then what you see is um, men of military age fleeing Russia. And I certainly have read before uh, the latest um, call-up of uh, reserve forces in Russia, uh, you know, I've read reports of um, uh, Russian uh, men, you know, fleeing, for example, uh, uh, to Georgia, um, in order to escape uh, military service um, um, in uh, Ukraine. So at least as far as I see it, uh, there's a very different uh, morale on the Ukrainian side. They believe in what they're fighting for. 
there's a big difference between them and and the Russians. But when it when it comes down to it, what we need to understand on the left is that these are factors uh, in the war. But the crucial thing is to uh, put this war in a bigger picture. And what this war um, is all about um, is the attempt by the United States uh, to reassert its um, hegemony. It's still the hegemon, but it wants to reassert its hegemony, not against uh, a challenge from Russia. Uh, that's a secondary uh, question, uh, but primarily um, against um, a China. And in that sense, we need to understand uh, that Ukraine is a pawn uh, in the game in the same way, uh, at least in terms of propaganda. I don't know whether it was plucky. You know, it was poor little Belgium uh, was a pawn in the propaganda campaign uh, in World War One, and plucky Serbia um, was a pawn, um, um, you know, not in propaganda terms, but in military terms in the run-up and in the course of uh, World War uh, One. So while I think, again, this is purely speculative, um, that these stories of uh, splits and divisions um, uh, on the Russian side, I, I take them as being real. Um, you know, that what you've got is the possibility um, of uh, Putin uh, being shoved um, into a sanatorium. Uh, he's ill. Um, he's exhausted. Um, he's had a breakdown. He's, he's agreed to step down as, uh, as president. And then we have uh, someone else uh, stepping in. That is not going to be the end of the matter. And I think that's what we need to uh, understand, that even if Russia uh, withdraws from every inch of um, Ukrainian soil, and I include in that uh, Crimea and therefore loses its uh, Sevastopol base, its uh, access to the Black Sea, um, you know, from that strategic um, base and therefore the Mediterranean, um, then what we're going to get is uh, Ukrainian stroke Western stroke NATO demands uh, for huge uh, reparations. Um, and Russia will presumably refuse to pay. And then we're into, well, how do we extract um, payments uh, from an un unwilling Russia? Uh, so the war goes on. Um, I think that that is what we need to understand in one form or um, uh, another. Now, I, I just thought I'd bung it in, uh, not because I take Trump totally seriously. One cannot take Trump uh, totally seriously, but it is just worthwhile quoting uh, Trump in a recent uh, speech um, saying that Biden forced um, uh, Putin into uh, this war, that if he'd been president still, uh, this war wouldn't um, have happened. I treat that with a degree of seriousness uh, that I wouldn't treat uh, other uh, Trump statements uh, with. For example, uh, I won the election in 2019, that there was a massive cheating uh, operation. I don't take that seriously. Uh, but yes, I do think uh, that US strategists have pushed uh, Russia into a position 
uh, of where it attacked Ukraine. I think they had a choice about it. I certainly think they had a choice about the timing of it. They certainly had a choice in terms of preparations for it. Uh, I think there's clearly been a massive, not only military and logistical failure on the Russian side, but a massive intelligence failure. Or maybe the stories about Putin only getting the news he wants to get, i.e. that uh, when Russian tanks arrive in Kiev, uh, they're going to be greeted with um, flags and uh, uh, jubilation. And I'm talking about Russian flags and uh, jubilation. Um, maybe, maybe he believed it. Uh, but if, you know, if, if he did, uh, I certainly uh, uh, didn't. Um, you know, I could uh, believe that when it comes to the East, maybe certain parts uh, of the South, but certainly not when you come to the, the center of the country and definitely not uh, when you come to the West uh, uh, um, 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 of uh, the country, that, that what you've had is a developing hostility uh, to Russia and, and Russians. That's my reading of the situation in the run-up uh, to the February uh, invasion. So maybe uh, uh, Biden caught um, um, Putin in a trap. Either way, he was very ill-advised. And I'm not saying that it's his advisors necessarily that were full. I'm using the word um, as in foolish. He was very foolish uh, to make uh, the move that he did uh, in February. It's been disastrous, both for Ukraine and millions of Ukrainian people, for tens of thousands of people um, who've lost their lives, mainly civilians, but an awful lot of military uh, personnel on both sides. But it's been a strategic disaster uh, for Russia. Okay. Um, will Putin cornered and um, uh, desperate uh, will Putin use nuclear weapons? Uh, for what it's worth, um, I personally don't see any advantage uh, in it. I mean, okay, so uh, what if you nuked, and we're not talking about tactical weapons in this case, what, what would happen if you nuked uh, Kiev? Well, militarily, what difference would it make on the front line? Um, I don't see that that makes a, a crucial, I don't, doesn't turn Russia's position into a, a war winner. Uh, what it would do would be invite um, some sort of um, direct, you know, um, um, military intervention uh, by the United States. And uh, one would presume that they would degrade uh, the Russian army in Ukraine. Uh, to a massive uh, degree, you know, so you have to ask why uh, would they use um, nuclear weapons? And when it comes certainly to tactical nuclear weapons, are we dealing, you know, with massed uh, tank formations, massed uh, formations of um, infantry? That's not my reading um, um, of the situation. So militarily, to me at least, it doesn't make any sense. And uh, to to use uh, the threat uh, of uh, nuclear weapons to me is a sign of desperation um, as opposed to a serious um, uh, military threat. But hey, um, it, could still, it could still happen. Um, for what it's worth, again, um, 
my guess is if that really was on the agenda and, uh, you know, Putin ordered, um, you know, the codes uh, to launch some sort of attack, um, I, I would expect him uh, to be removed uh, by people who are sitting next to him, i.e. people either in or former people in the FSB, the military high command, um, that sort of circle. Okay. Um, lastly, on that sort of particular score, we've got a new person, I think the first person in an overall charge um, of the military campaign. We're told that he's a horror. Um, and that's General Sergi Savikin. Uh, why is he a horror? He's the guy that was in charge of Russian forces in uh, Syria, uh, which were successful, remember, um, in um, the Russian side in terms of uh, defeating um, Al-Qaeda forces, uh, but also ISIS uh, uh, forces. Um, I'm sure he's a terrible uh, person. Um, but why he's um, meant to be so much more terrible than any other Russian general, um, I don't know. Think in terms of um, the Ukraine question, two more uh, comments are worthwhile. And the first one is on OPEC+. Plus. OPEC+, Plus is, of course, um, OPEC. I don't know how many members it's got, but crucially, uh, what we have is um, Saudi Arabian leadership um, of OPEC. Uh, the United States is the world's largest producer of oil, uh, I think closely followed by Russia, closely followed by Saudi Arabia. Uh, but it's uh, Saudi Arabia is the world's by far the largest exporter of oil, followed by Russia, not followed. Uh, by uh, the United States, which is either the world's largest or second largest consumer uh, of oil. I don't know whether it will be China or the United States. At, at a guess, uh, looking at the number of cars in the United States, not number of people, my guess for what it's worth will be the United States. But as I said, that's just a guess. But the crucial question is that what we're dealing with is OPEC plus, and the plus is Russia. And what they've agreed to do is reduce the output of uh, oil collectively by 2 million barrels uh, a day. And of course, this is a humiliation uh, for Biden. So we shouldn't imagine uh, that um, in spite of all that I've said about Putin being in trouble, the Russian army being in trouble, uh, the question of morale and all the rest of it in Ukraine, that everything is going swimmingly uh, as far as Putin uh, is concerned, you know, in terms of grand strategy. Uh, I don't think that that is the case. And indeed, uh, if you take what I was saying about, uh, you know, from um, Trump saying that it was Putin, uh, no, it was Putin that was pushed uh, into this war by Biden, that at least seems to be the reading uh, of um, um, others uh, as well. So it's, it's worth noting, isn't it, the response of India and China, not natural friends uh, to this invasion, and in essence, taking either a quietly pro-Russian uh, view 
a sympathetic view uh, of Russia or something, um, um, how should we put it, that you could characterize as, as neutrality, uh, but definitely not joining in uh, with the Western crusade of sanctions or supplying arms uh, to Ukraine, far from it. Uh, these countries are complicit clearly in breaking uh, sanctions, uh, importing uh, Russian oil uh, and uh, other um, raw material that Russia uh, is producing and one presumes is uh, also responsible uh, for exporting um, uh, commodities that Russia uh, needs, uh, including for its um, uh, military. And what's surprising uh, to me, and one would have thought uh, to Joe Biden, is that amongst those that uh, aren't playing the sanctions game, clearly, as I've indicated, is Saudi Arabia, because here we have OPEC plus. Well, the, the plus side is easy to understand. That's Russia. Uh, and I don't think it will be reducing uh, its output of oil um, you know, voluntarily here. It might be reducing its output of oil. But Saudi Arabia, uh, that matters. You know, that's after Biden going to uh, Riyadh after the dismemberment, remember, of uh, the journalist and Biden lecturing uh, MBS about human rights. Um, and MBS has turned around and said, well, I'm joining Putin uh, in uh, limiting the output, reducing uh, the output of oil uh, by OPEC. And this is in conditions, remember, also of where, again, to my surprise, uh, there's been no um, nuclear deal between um, Iran and is it the five powers? Um, you know, um, uh, that, is, that is something I would have expected them to do. Yeah, we hear uh, stories about some sort of rapprochement with Venezuela, purportedly the country with the world's largest oil reserves. Uh, you could dispute that. Uh, either way, um, while the United States um, isn't going to suffer, uh, directly, clearly, this is a, a strategic humiliation uh, for um, the United States. And I've always been of the view, I could, I could be wrong, uh, that the United States basically is in the position of master uh, when it comes to Saudi Arabia. And so I could be totally wrong. Uh, but if we saw um, um, a sudden about face or it was suddenly announced that uh, MBS was no longer heir apparent, um, that if there'd been some sort of coup, I'm talking about a palace coup, um, that wouldn't surprise me. And if there was a palace coup, um, I know who I would go to to blame first. I would say, this must be the CIA. And, uh, you know, I could be wrong, uh, but that would be my first prob probability. Uh, what who did it? Uh, it would be the United States. Uh, why? Because uh, this is MBS dis dissing uh, the United States uh, rather than going along uh, with its strategic uh, goal. Um, it's uh, acting to put a, a spoke uh, in the wheel. So I think that, you know, 
events will follow um, from this um, uh, decision uh, to cut oil uh, output. And lastly, in, in terms of Ukraine, as you would expect, uh, we have the uh, Nobel um, Prize this year awarded to uh, the servants of um, imperialism, as always. Uh, you know, South Africa, it was de Klerk and uh, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, because um, instead of having a, an overthrow uh, of apartheid, what we had is a negotiated um, transition from apartheid, uh, basically where capital uh, wasn't interfered with, you know, the extraction and surplus value wasn't interfered with, uh, you know, South Africa's position in the world division of labor wasn't interfered with. What you had is a transition from white faces politically uh, to black faces uh, politically. So Nelson Mandela uh, was awarded um, 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 his Nobel Prize and of all people de Klerk uh, one can imagine the negotiations with de Klerk that uh, either you agree to this or we do you. We um, will uh, impose regime change um, on you and you can either go gracefully with a Nobel Prize. How about that, uh, de Klerk? Um, or we get rid of you some other way. And uh, he accepted his Nobel uh, Prize. All you need to do is look down the list of Nobel Prize winners. And I think with few, ex few exceptions. Um, it's been um, a mark of shame uh, rather than a badge of honour. So just looking at this year's, uh, we've got Memorial, which I think, and this is from memory, goes back to late Gorbachev. And these were people that were investigating and exposing uh, the crimes of Stalin and the gulags and executions and premature deaths um, in the... 1930s in particular, but a, a campaign, um, an institution that recalibrated itself um, to, that, that basically became an anti-Putin um, campaign and has hence been closed down. In Belarus, uh, we've got the imprisoned Alex Bayakovsky, and in Ukraine, uh, we've got the Ukrainian Center for Civil Liberties. Um, I just think it's worthwhile noting uh, that um, this particular campaign hasn't, for example, highlighted and protested and been awarded its uh, prize uh, for campaigning against uh, the closing of 11 parties by the Zelensky regime. Um, it hasn't been... Um, uh, highlighting the erosion of trade union and workers' rights uh, in Ukraine, um, the um, championing of, um, you know, uh, Bandlera and the um, cult uh, around um, um, his uh, pro-Nazi uh, nationalism in the 1940s. Uh, nor has it been highlighting the uh, arbitrary execution of people charged with um, collaborating uh, with Russian occupiers uh, that's been going on uh, both as the Russian army retreated north, uh, but also as the Russian army has retreated in the east and in the south, 
what's been happening is the uh, execution of people who were um, collaborating uh, with Russia's Russian forces. And of course, this would be people who um, would be Russian, were pro-Russian. Um, they haven't been put on trial. They're simply shot. Uh, so, no, what uh, this this organization is all about, of course, is exposing Russian war crimes. And I'm sure there have been Russian war crimes, but I'm also convinced that there would have been um, and are um, Ukrainian war crimes um, uh, as well. So, yeah, what we've got, uh, as has been pointed out to me, um, this is not the equivalent of the Nobel Prize uh, for physics or the Nobel Prize um, for literature or the Nobel Prize for chemistry. Um, I would take those prizes as, you know, uh, you know, as being some sort of legitimate reward for people who've made a contribution uh, to human culture. I, I take the Nobel Peace Prize in the same way that I take the Nobel Prize for economics. Uh, this is an, <laughs> this is ideological, uh, and you might as well call it the um, you know the State Department Prize um, in in the same way that you if you take um, you know winners of um, uh, Nobel Prize for uh, economics. Okay, moving on um, to British politics here in Britain, uh, the press is full of stories about the civil war in the Tory Party. Um, I think that that's real. So we need to remember uh, that under Conservative Party rules, uh, what you have is the MPs choosing two candidates to go uh, forward to the Tory uh, membership. And that membership, I think, has gone up um, from 150,000. The figure that I've read, I did look it up, it's gone up to 172. Thousand, and I presume it's gone up because people wanted to vote in the um, um, election uh, contest, um, which ended up, of course, between the former Chancellor um, Sunak and uh, Liz Truss, um, who's now the Prime Minister, and of course was former, uh, well, was at the time Foreign uh, Secretary. But the point I would make is that it was Sunak that was overwhelmingly favoured. Uh, by the MPs, um, while the rank and file preferred uh, trust. Why? Uh, because she uh, dressed like Thatcher, sounded like Thatcher, and promised um, a Thatcherite type um, revolution. Um, that's why they voted uh, for her. Um, but of course, what we had is the disastrous um, so called mini budget. Uh, the promise to um, clamp down on excess benefits. This is in the midst of a cost of living crisis of where inflation in Britain is over 10%. Um, we had that um, along with, um, you know, the abolition of the 45% uh, percent, uh, tax band and a, a 40 billion uh, plus uh, tax cut uh, uh, announced. And so from a Tory um, MP's point of view, it's not that you have any sympathy, um, you know, for people on benefit, uh, although some might. Um, I'm not uh, saying that they're all heartless, 
But uh, all it took uh, would be opinion polls uh, to give them the message. And what we had is a series of opinion polls uh, that put uh, Liz Truss's ratings at historic lows uh, for a sitting uh, prime minister uh, and record leads uh, for the Labour Party. So the highest we've seen is a 33% lead uh, by the Labour Party. As I said, I think the other week that would give the Tories something like 61 MPs in the House of Commons. I don't know how many uh, Labour MPs, but, you know, like a huge, huge majority. And just recently in London, uh, the Evening Standard, the um, giveaway, uh, Russian-owned <laughs> um, uh, daily paper, evening paper in London, uh, we've had a uh, opinion poll here, and that gives Lon uh, that gives the um, the tour the tour the Labour Party in London a thirty nine percent lead here, and so that would mean no um, uh, Tory MPs whatsoever uh, in London. So in central London, apart from the very very core of London. Uh, uh, what we have is Labour MPs, and around that we have a sort of donut of um, Tory MPs. Uh, what you'd have, if that uh, opinion poll was right, is 100% uh, Labour MPs, plus I think either one or two uh, Lib Dem um, uh, MPs. So what I think is driving uh, this uh, feel cheated by the rank and file in terms of, you know, how dare they elect the wrong uh, candidate instead of choosing uh, Liz Truss, they should have chosen uh, Rishi Sunak. I don't think that's what's going on. Um, uh, I think that what they say is that Liz Truss's programme is going to be electorally disastrous uh, for the Tory party and me. Uh, as an MP, and I want to keep my uh, job. Now, of course, there, there will be a calculation also by others uh, that say, well, you know, having seen Cameron, David Cameron, go after him losing, you shouldn't do such things, should you, a referendum campaign. And then we saw Boris, no, we didn't see Boris, and then we saw Theresa May, then we saw Boris Johnson, then we've seen uh, Liz Truster to have five prime ministers you know, in such a short period of time would be a disaster in its own right. And that is quite clearly uh, possible. But there will be those, are those uh, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party who clearly are saying, no, if we get rid of Liz Truss, we still might go down to a defeat, but at least I might get to keep my uh, job as an MP, that we, we ain't going to go down to such a uh, 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 defeat. And that's obviously the case, you know, that that calculation is being made. Um, um, others are clearly making the calculation that they believe in what Liz Truss is going to do and that it's going to work. Um, I, I think that, well, uh, to me, that's, you know, faith over reason. Um, I, I don't see Britain going into um, boom uh, conditions or for that matter, you know, any sort of uh, rapid growth, everything that I see in terms of Europe and in terms of the world economy, 
uh, tell me that what we'll be dealing with is um, stagnation, maybe some sort of recession, but certainly in Britain, uh, I don't see any, um, you know, um, high levels of um, uh, economic growth. I could be wrong. Um, Liz Truss could be right. Uh, it's just that I don't think so. Okay. So, yeah, panic in the Tory party, civil war in the Tory party, war in the cabinet, war um, in the parliamentary uh, party. There will be an attempt to um, threaten uh, MPs, but when the rebellion goes into the heart of the cabinet itself, uh, that becomes uh, very difficult. Uh, we wait and see. Meanwhile, of course, what we've had is Keir Starmer had a good conference, no booing, uh, no heckling. Um, he looks like you know, prime minister in waiting. And what we have is this strange uh, situation of where if you went to the rallies of the socialist campaign group, I don't know how many members they've got in parliament. This is the parliamentary left of the Labour Party, 11 MPs, something like that, not Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, at the moment. Anyway, they have a big rally because, you know, John McDonald's famous and there's Diane Abbott. She's well known. I've seen her on the television. You go along to their rally and you listen to them speak. Um, and what are they saying? That we're winning the argument, that it's really welcome. Although we haven't won things totally, there's Keir Starmer coming around to our way of thinking. Uh, the same thing happened in the campaign for Labour Party democracy. And I heard uh, a former advisor of uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, an economics advisor, a guy called uh, Andrew Fisher, uh, on the radio claiming the same thing, uh, that because Keir Starmer's got, you know, banners in front of him, banners behind of him, which got the word green in it, uh, that indicates the, um, the left is winning the argument. Uh, that when they talk about some sort of national energy company, not nationalization of the energy sector, but this is some sort of victory uh, for the left. Uh, I, I just think they're delusional. Uh, but also, I think I want to throw this uh, uh, into the ring as well. I also think that the, what we're dealing with here um, is a situation of careerists uh, who see their opportunity with a massive um, Labour majority uh, being expected, uh, they see their opportunity uh, for promotion uh, into the ranks of uh, ministers, uh, into the ranks of advisors and quangos and spads and all the rest of it uh, that uh, Starmer and his team will have available to them. And what they're announcing with this, um, well, Starmer's coming round to our point of view in my humble estimate at least, is we're willing to be bought, we're willing uh, to sell out, uh, we're willing uh, to uh, join Keir Starmer in the feeding frenzy of um, you know, well-paid jobs and uh, career uh, advancement, at least with many um, um, of them. Uh, it's either that um, or... Um, you know, left labor right uh, delusion. Actually, when I think about it, I think it's most likely half a dozen of one and six uh, um, um, of uh, another. Either way, it ain't true that what Keir Starmer is promising 
uh, is going to be a solidly right-wing uh, Labour government uh, that le leaves uh, in place uh, most of what uh, uh, the Tories have done over the last 12 years, not least what um, Margaret Thatcher did um, with, you know, perhaps the most restrictive anti-trade union laws uh, in Western Europe. Uh, Keir Starmer isn't talking about challenging them um, or, um, you know, um, relaxing um, all the hoops and um, uh, all the rest of it that trade unions need in order to carry out industrial action of any sort uh, uh, in in Britain. Okay, two other items, and these are both now um, so-called international uh, issues. Uh, Iran, um, what is noticeable, of course, in Iran is the duration of the popular protests uh, against the government and in how many provinces and in how many cities uh, these protests uh, um, you know, um, uh, are manifesting themselves uh, uh, in. I'm told uh, that uh, those involved in, in the protests at the present time mainly consist of the upper end uh, of the working class and the lower end um, of the middle uh, class. So this will include, and at where you draw the line in Iran, I don't know, but will include teachers, uh, will include uh, university students, uh, will include nurses, uh, oil workers. I think we've seen sugar workers. Uh, we've seen either way, what it hasn't yet done uh, is go to the very bottom uh, of uh, society. Um, but what, it, what we have seen is splits above. And what we're talking about is, as I understand it, not splits within the so-called conservative faction, but what we've seen is uh, the split uh, between the so-called, so-called, remember, so-called reformists uh, and uh, the conservatives, of course, because the reformists regard themselves as having been cheated in the last presidential elections when we had... Um, uh, the conservative um, candidate basically uh, shoehorned uh, in um, and what they see is their chance for revenge. So as I understand it, their press, their media, uh, their spokespeople have been urging people to protest uh, against the regime uh, and its laws, uh, but not to use violent um, uh, methods. Well, the reality is, of course, that it's the state that's been using uh, the violence, that if you look at who's being killed, it ain't exactly members of the police uh, uh, that you know, are suffering in large numbers. I think the death toll, at least as that I've read, is at the level of about 120 people um, have been killed. And the fact that demonstrations are continuing uh, clearly shows that the regime uh, is in trouble. Does this indicate uh, the end of the regime? Is the end nigh? Uh, possibly not, uh, but clearly the regime is in trouble and at the present time shows no willingness or no ability, maybe we should put it that way, 
of compromising. Because, of course, this isn't simply about uh, the veil. This isn't simply about where you actually uh, put your veil uh, if you're a woman, how much hair you're allowed to show and all the rest of it. Clearly, what we're dealing with, if you listen to the slogans, yeah, people object to being arrested uh, by the so-called morality police. But what people are calling for is the death of the dictator, the end of the regime. Uh, and in certain parts of the country, uh, these uh, demands are being joined uh, with the um, protests against food prices and restrictions on trade unions and freedom in, in general. Um, so this isn't simply uh, a feminist movement. No, uh, this is clearly a mass movement uh, that involves wide sections um, of uh, the population. So although women have taken the lead uh, in these protests, uh, what we've seen is, is the whole thing um, mushroom um, and it is it's really heartening isn't it when you see school you know school students and students shouting down uh, these ayatollahs with you know go 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 uh, we're not listening to you uh, to hell with you uh, and other such uh, uh, slogans um, we should also just add uh, of course that the last thing that we welcome uh, and anybody with uh, genuine concerns for the people of Iran, the last thing we welcome uh, is interference by Saudi Arabia, Israel uh, and the United States and its, uh, its attempt at regime change. We need regime change from below. And of course, that's the rub. Where is the left uh, at the present time? Well, it's there, uh, but it's, um, you know, been massively weakened. Um, um, over what well, I'm just going to do my rough arithmetic. We said roughly from 80, we're talking about uh, 40, 40 years of theocratic uh, dictatorship. Okay, lastly, um, some sections of the left are looking forward uh, to October the 30th. Well, I suppose we all are on one level and that's the elections in Brazil. Um, because it looks like, uh, to me at least, that um, Bolsonaro will lose. It's true that Lula didn't win outright in the first round. I, don't, I didn't read opinion poll uh, predictions myself, so I wasn't surprised one way or the other. Uh, but what the actual result of the vote was in the first round between the two leading candidates was... Um, uh, Lula on 48.3% uh, and Bolsonaro on 43. So five uh, percentage points behind. And apparently that was Bolsonaro doing better than expected. So clearly in Brazil, just like the United States and just like Britain, um, there are um, shy reactionaries. Um, you know, so Trump's vote was better than had been predicted in 2019. Tory votes are usually higher uh, than pollsters predict um, because Tories basically feel some sort of moral pressure uh, in terms of wider society uh, not to declare themselves as Tories. So presumably that's what operates in Brazil. Either way, my expectation is that the 
votes of the other candidates will in the main uh, go to uh, Bols- uh, not but not to Bolsonaro, uh, but to um, Lula. And my expectation would be, again, this is really going out, I admit, um, on a limb, uh, that there won't be uh, a military coup. Uh, I don't see uh, us uh, being in those uh, conditions. If this was the 1960s or 70s or 80s, yes, 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 uh, of course, uh, this wouldn't be allowed to happen. Uh, But we ain't. Uh, in that situation any longer. The Soviet Union has has collapsed and the left, uh, certainly in Latin America, has radically uh, changed. Um, So uh, it should be pointed out, uh, of course, that this is a presidential election. And just like in the United States, just like in Chile, just like in, uh, and I'm talking about Chile both now and back in the 70s, um, and in France, uh, that what presidents uh, need, however much power they've got, in order to get legislation through, uh, they've got to get a majority uh, in uh, both houses, as an upper house and a lower house. And the Workers' Party hasn't got a majority in either house, And of course, what uh, Lula is running um, alongside with is someone called Gerardo Ackelman. That's about the best uh, Portuguese you're going to get from me uh, tonight. Uh, What's his significance? Well, he's a member and has previously been a presidential candidate for the Brazilian Social Democratic Party. Uh, I did look it up. I had no um, illusions, I hasten to add, that this party had any left-wing tradition in terms of its history. Um, I didn't know anything about it, but clearly this wasn't an example of uh, the Brazilian version of the Second International uh, with roots in Marxism. Uh, No, uh, there wasn't a Brazilian uh, mass social democratic party back in the... um, late 19th century, early 20th century, that the Brazilian Social Democratic Party actually is a creation of the late 1980s. It was set up in 19, this is my Wikipedia research, it was set up in 1988 and was legalized in 1989 as the military regime uh, gave way to a civilian regime in um, uh, Brazil. So what are the politics of the Social Democratic Party? Well, you could say it was like David Owen and Shirley Williams, but I don't think that would be accurate. It's a right-wing party. So again, this is Wikipedia. What do they say? It's pro-business. It's part of the financial establishment, and you can't call it um, a centrist party, according to left-wing opinion in uh, Brazil. This is Wikipedia again, that on the left in Brazil, uh, they call it a neoliberal party. So what we have is the, um, uh, the expectation that Lula, who's a member of the Workers' Party, which has its roots in the trade union movement, yes, of the 80s and the fight against the military a dictatorship uh, running alongside a, a neoliberal pro-business right wing 
uh, vice president. Uh, that's the uh, team. And of course, they're running alongside them, uh, basically in the name of defeating Bolsonaro, uh, but also they're, they're running alongside each other uh, because uh, the vice president actually sets the ideological and programmatic limits uh, of where President Lula will go. That's the function of vice uh, presidents. That's the function of right-wing partners uh, in a popular front. And also, just to add this, that the how will Lula uh, get legislation through um, both houses of, um, I don't know what they're called in Brazil, but both houses? Well, I've had it explained to me uh, by members of the Workers' Party when you ask them, well, was Lula, was the replacement of Lula as president, were they corrupt? And you, they go, well, of course he was corrupt. How on earth do you think we get legislation through? You know, the Workers' Party has never had a majority uh, uh, in Brazil. How do you think we get legislation through? We have to bribe these bastards. All we are, though, is we're less corrupt. We're not corrupt like those lot. They are totally corrupt. We, we're just corrupt on the level of bribing you know, members of the opposition to vote legislation through uh, for us. Well, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I find that believable. Uh, I, 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 um, I can understand that. So what we have uh, is another example of um, a pink, the pink tide. Um, and uh, all you need to ask about the prospect of... Um, uh, the election of um, Lula as president is when Joe Biden, if Joe Biden sends, I, if he's elected, sends his congratulations, will he mean it? Well, in my view, yes, uh, because what Biden will see is the defeat of a Trump ally in Brazil, Bolsonaro. Um, and that will be, you know, one up uh, in terms of the United States Democrats. Um, in their struggle with the Republicans and the possibility of Trump running um, um, for a second time. No, excuse me, for a third uh, time, second time attempt to become. Shut up, John. <laughs> you know what I mean. Will he run? Uh, that's really what I'm saying. Yeah, this will be a blow where if, on the other hand, Bolsonaro won and Joe Biden sent him congratulations, would he mean it? No, he wouldn't. And that shows you the change in world politics uh, between the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, of where the United States would have backed a military coup uh, against some tinkering reformist government uh, in any country uh, in Latin America and the situation uh, today. Uh, these these uh, th th these pink politicians, they are palest pink and represent no real threat uh, to the United States. Um, if anything, um, they are allies, at least of the Democrat Party in the United States, not the Republican Party. I ha hasten to add. So I'll admit that. Anyway, that's it. That's the finish.